0: About the hardest thing you'll have to do on a walking tour of the capital of Slovenia is learn how they spell the name of the city.
1: When we have time, we, locals, we love to come to the central market and we see how the seasons are changing. And, you know, Slovenia is low-key, Ljubljana is low-key. You meet the president (laughs) at the market.
0: Things are pretty casual in the southern part of Germany as well, even the way they speak.
2: The language already is different. The language is a little bit slower. We uh, drop a couple syllables. We use the wrong articles, and uh, we don't mind that. And Marty Essen has learned a few surprises about the
0: wildlife he photographs in exotic places around the world.
3: Well, it turns out that vampire bats have the most effective anticoagulant known to man in their saliva.
0: Stroll around Ljubljana, get ready for Oktoberfest in Bavaria, and get up close to some wild creatures. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. We're about to explore two cities in the heart of Europe that are easy to enjoy on foot today on Travel with Rick Steves. A guide from Munich lets us in on what makes her region of Bavaria stand apart from the rest of Germany. And we'll get walking tour ideas for Slovenia's comfortable and modest capital city of Ljubljana in just a moment. Plus, nature photographer Marty Essen joins us later in the hour to tell us about some of his favorite creatures in the wild, even the slimy and slithery ones. Let's start the hour discovering why the Slovenian capital is often called one of the greenest and most livable cities in Europe. Joining us in our studio all the way from Ljubljana is tour guide Barbara Jakovic. And Cameron Hewitt joins us as well. He's the co-author of the Rick Steves' Eastern Europe and the Rick Steves' Croatia and Slovenia guidebooks. I'll bet that Cameron has written a few of his updates from the comfort of a riverside café in Ljubljana on at least a few occasions. You know, it's so funny, Barbara, when I think about Ljubljana, it's hard for me to... Well, first of all, it's kind of a strangely difficult word to pronounce. How do we say the capital? Ljubljana. Ljubljana.
1: Ljubljana. So it's very simple when you don't overthink it. You just have to say it.
0: And it's kind of like the city. It's, It's very simple if you don't overthink it. When I think about Ljubljana... I have a hard time relating to any particular site, but there's something that I enjoy about it.
1: Well, you don't have to remember anything about Ljubljana. If you enjoy it, that is enough because it's a small town and nothing is super important in Ljubljana. So just the enjoyable time that you spend there, that's enough. And if you take that with you, that's more than enough for us.
0: So that's enough. If you just relax and and let it happen. Yes. And Cameron, how do you find Ljubljana?
4: Um I think that's exactly it. It's just purely enjoyable it's a It's a beautiful city, small city. It's got gorgeous riverfront promenades with outdoor cafes. It's got a lively thriving market right in the city center, welcoming and inviting squares and bridges and embankments. It's just a, a fun place to relax and spend time and browse and not really have a sightseeing agenda.
0: It seems to me like it's just on a on a human scale, but that doesn't happen accidentally. There's an architectural sort of genius behind it, you know, a Slovenian architect.
4: Exactly. In the early 20th century, there's a guy named Joza Plecnik, who's from Ljubljana, and he gained fame throughout the Habsburg Empire. And then when he retired, he came back to his hometown, and he he basically redesigned the whole city. He laid out the riverfront embankments, lots of bridges, lots of buildings, and kind of remade the city in his own image. And what's really interesting about him is he lived in the city, and he walked to work every day. So he designed the city to be pleasant for pedestrians. He wanted to have a nice walk to work every day, so he had, huh. he had an incentive to make it a very livable city.
0: So, Barbara, talk a little bit more, because you live in the town of Plečnik. What yes. do people think about Jose Plečnik?
1: Well, Jose Plečnik literally created Ljubljana as we know it today, and Cameron is absolutely correct. Uh, when Plečnik returned to Ljubljana, he was already a well-known architect working before in Vienna, in Prague, And then he returned in Ljubljana in the time after the First World War. And you see, Ljubljana was not a capital at that point. It was a provincial town. It was a small town in one of the provinces of Austro-Hungarian monarchy. It was never meant to be a capital. But Plečnik had this idea that it should be something more. So that was his starting point. And like Cameron said, he was designing the city on his walks. You have this axis in Ljubljana when his works are concentrated, really, and he would add to his ideas in different points of time. So it was it's not straightforward. He would start here and end in the other spot of the city, but whenever he would have a chance and there was money available, he would add to his vision, and a lot of his work was never finished.
0: <laughs> so when you're in Ljubljana and you're just thinking, God, this city is such a joy, you should probably pause and think... Thank Plednik
1: yes, definitely, definitely. We do that every day, and our architects they still have to consider <laughs> his ideas <laughs> even today
0: it 's a small city, like less than three hundred thousand, so small by European standards for yes. a national capital
4: exactly and I should say it's the setting is also beautiful it's it 's a twisty river that runs around the base of a mountain, so it 's a little bit like salzburg mm-hmm. uh, there 's a castle on top of the mountain. And it's in the foothills of the Alps. So you look off on the horizon and you see alpine peaks. Mm. So it also, not just the, the man-made architecture of Lozze-Plechnik, but just the beautiful setting is is another part of its appeal. And
0: Cameron, there's this sort of unique triple bridge. Can you describe that?
4: Well, that's one of uh, Plechnik's creations. There was a bridge there already, but it's the main bridge that runs right through the, the central intersection of town uh, across the river, right by the main square. And he added two little side bridges to kind of funnel the human and uh, and vehicle traffic in a more mm-hmm. natural way creating three bridges, which is called the triple bridges you can just hang out on the triple bridge and sit and watch the world go by. And it just you see how everything flows and you see the mountains on the horizon and it just has that kind of relaxing feel to it.
0: It's got a nice cafe vibe right there. And there's arcades and nearby is the market. Uh, Barbara, talk about the market because I found the market to be just particularly inviting and characteristic.
1: Yes, that's the heart of the city. Mm -hmm. And again, Plechnik would add to it because we had the last big earthquake in 1895 that left the empty space that was later used as a market. But Plechnik connected it this area with the triple bridge through the colonnade, which is now the covered part, and the fish market as well. But it remained the heart of the city. So the open air market with all the fresh products. Very important people like that. And it is idea. a real market. You've got merchants a, coming in. Exactly. It's a real market. It's where people go and buy things. I mean when we have time, we locals, we love to come to the central market And we see how the seasons are changing. And, you know, Slovenia is low-key, Ljubljana is low-key. You meet the president at the market. (laughs) That's That's right, you can famously meet
4: the president. And
1: uh... And you do, actually.
4: Um, I think the other thing about it is it's not like a touristy market. There's one mm-hmm. little touristy area that's right. right, the area that's closest to the main square. But then you get deeper into the market, and it's it's really just local producers. And sometimes you can see the actual carts. There's garden patches yes. that are not that far out of the city center. And people will actually just load up their carts and walk them into the market. So you're really getting stuff direct from the producer. One of my favorite things at the market is there's a mleko mat, which is farm fresh milk. And you right. just put in a few coins, and they they load it up every morning with with milk that was milk that morning from the cows, and you take it home, and it's it's you know you don't see that kind of direct connection to the producer in a lot of markets. You know,
0: I've been to Libya enough to to recognize the joy that both of you experts have in this city, and to think how few people go there and how accessible it is. If you're in Salzburg. It's an easy train ride. If you're in Venice, it's just a a couple hours away. There's so many opportunities for people who will venture to the capital of Slovenia. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the capital of Slovenia, Ljubljana. We're joined by two guides who are experts on Slovenia, Barbara Jakovic and Cameron Hewitt. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Joyce is calling in from Kirkland, Washington. Joyce, thanks for your call.
5: Yes, thank you. Well, as I'm hearing you review the city, it reminds me so much of my trip there in 2013. I was there in June, and it was beautiful. And it was the beginning of a tour, and I felt at the end of two or three days that I could have just stayed there. It was so much fun. The city seems so authentic. Uh, It's almost like the perfect host, as if the host got it ready and invited us there, but then got out of our way and let us enjoy it. I love to walk, so I especially enjoyed walking up and down the river and up to the castle. If I remember, there's a funicular, but I prefer to walk whenever I can. On the other hand, we had a wonderful guide with us who would give us information that I wouldn't have gotten if I had done it completely on foot without any help. So the whole experience was great. I love to take pictures, so then I get away and try to find the quirky little things, whether it's the love locks or the shoes on the telephone wire or some other strange things that I saw. But uh, all in all, it was a, a great day. Oh,
0: that's great. Well, thanks, Joyce, for your for your call and your memories. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com, and uh, JB has emailed us from Titusville in Florida, and JB writes, what are the taste treats of this region not to miss? He says, I remember the spicy grilled sausages and the seasonal fruits and vegetables. Are there special tastes from your experience that we should all plan on trying?
1: Well, Ljubljana is right in the middle of the country. So we really get influences from all sides of Slovenia. And Slovenia is small, but it's very diverse. So you get the sausages from the north and the sauerkraut. Sauerkraut is actually excellent in Ljubljana. And on the market, you have to try it if you are in autumn, winter times. And then from the Hungarian influences from the east, uh, from the Adriatic coast, we get the pastas and the risottos. Everywhere in Ljubljana, you will get all of that and it's all okay. Pizza is excellent in Ljubljana. But now these traditional Ljubljana dishes are coming back to the city center and one of them are fried frog legs. Really? So if you Slovenian really Slovenian frog legs. <laughs> Ljubljana, not Slovenia. <laughs> Ljubljana, <laughs> Ljubljana frog legs. legs. Let's get that
0: right. Wow. Yeah. So when we talk about a cultural crossroads where Italian, Germanic, and exactly. Slavic, it's also the cuisine. And also Ljubljana was the green capital of Europe in 2016. So it's uh, a leader yes. in uh, sustainability and climate change yes. sensibilities yes. and so on. What makes uh, Ljubljana special from uh, a green and a environmental point of view?
1: Well, there was so many things were done in Ljubljana in the last 15 years. I mean, according to the traffic regulation, we kicked out cars from the city center. It's all bicycles, sustainability, uh, green energy in the city center, recycling projects. Lots of trees. It's very green, lots of parks, and uh, people love recreation. They all live with this project. And also, whatever was done in Ljubljana, it was done for the people who live there. So not for the tourists. Tourists can enjoy it. Of course, they are welcome. But it was done for us, and I think it shows.
0: That's an interesting point, because in Europe now, there are many cities suffering from tourism uh, that are just too popular. And in Ljubljana, you don't feel that. You feel like it is done for the people.
1: Well, it is still down for the people. I mean, more people are coming, but for now, also, I would say that there are so many little places to explore that we don't experience the big lines and, you know, that there is no rush to see one important thing. It's just you can disperse to different areas Mm -hmm. and just enjoy yourself.
0: So, Cameron, you're an expert uh, at knowing where the big sites are and there's the marquee sites in these great cultural capitals. In Ljubljana, there's not the marquee sites...
4: Exactly. And exactly as Barbara was saying, um, because there's not any big name sites, it's easy to spread out and everyone can kind of discover a corner all to themselves. It's a beautiful cobbled old town.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Cameron Hewitt and Barbara Jakopic about the lovable capital of Slovenia. We're out of time, but I'd just like one more little capper from each of you, Cameron. When you're going to Ljubljana, what's some experience or insight you'd like to share?
4: Well, you know, I'm not much of a shopper, but it's one of my favorite places to just go shopping, walking down the main streets and browsing. And it is kind of a microcosm of this whole uh, little country where you can get sea salt that's harvested from the seaside in Slovenia. You can get mountain scenes from the mountainsides. Um, it's just a very charming place where you can sample different aspects of the of a country.
0: And Barbara?
1: Well, Ljubljana is heading towards new projects. And our mayor, he was now reelected for the fourth Time he has these new ideas to improve our life, to maybe make the river Ljubljana suitable for swimming. He promised us that he will go swimming this year, so we are all waiting.
0: Barbara Jakopich, Cameron Hewitt, thank you so much for giving us a better appreciation of Ljubljana. Thank you. Thank you. Na, na, na. getting to be Oktoberfest and a great time to be in Bavaria. We'll explore Munich and southern Germany next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. For six centuries, Bavaria was a distinct nation from the rest of what we now call Germany. It had its own ruling family and its own favorite foods and culture. From its capital, Munich, and up into the Alps, Bavaria is a region that provides many Americans with the images we picture when we think of old-world Germany. Today, Munich is often called Germany's most livable city. I like that its pedestrian-friendly historic core kind of makes the big city feel like an easygoing Bavarian town. It's also where tour guide Daniela Vedel was born and raised. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to explore the highlights of Munich and Bavaria and to help us kick off the Oktoberfest season with a look at what's unique about southern Germany. Daniela,
2: welcome! Thank you for inviting me, Rick. Grüß Gott. <laughs> There's a good example. You wouldn't say Grüß in Berlin, no. would you? No, you wouldn't. You would only say that, Grüß Gott, in Bavaria, in the southern areas, but particularly Bavaria, maybe even over the border to Tyrol. Tyrol, in Austria. Austria. So in
0: Austria or in Bavaria, you would have that charming southern kind of dialect. Mm -hmm. When we think, Daniela, of uh, the dialect between the north and the south of Germany, that's the little sort of the little topping of a deep cultural difference between the north and the south. Mm -hmm. How would you, as a Bavarian, characterize the difference between somebody who lives in Prussia in the north Mm -hmm. and somebody who lives in Bavaria in the south?
2: So me coming from the south... That's probably a little bit subjective. But uh, I would say that in the South, uh, the language already is different. The language is a little bit slower. We uh, drop a couple syllables. We use the wrong articles. And uh, we don't mind that. And uh, everyone else minds it. Otherwise, I would say probably people are a little bit more relaxed than the idea of the German. People take their time. They want to be outside a lot. People um, are more baroque And when I say Baroque, I mean that it's uh, always a little bit too much. A little bit of too muchness. Oh, like over the top? Yes, that we like to celebrate in in Bavaria very much.
0: I was going to say when you talked about uh, you're more Italian in the south, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. in Bavaria and in italy when somebody is over the top they're isimo mm-hmm.
2: so is- maybe yeah. <laughs> maybe
0: the bavarians are a little isimo a little
2: bit of isimo often you hear even in, in italy that people from northern italy would say or italians would say that munich is the most northern italian city that there is yeah now that yeah. relates also yeah.
0: to the religion because uh, the pope i think took good care of uh, bavaria because mm-hmm. bavaria was a sort of a foothold of catholicism mm-hmm. in the land of the reformation Absolutely. so the pope sent an extra dose of uh, relics yes. uh, to Bavaria to Munich yeah. so that they felt closer to Rome
2: yes a very dense net of abbeys we have Benedictine abbeys in particular in That's the countryside right. in Bavaria so if, when you drive through the countryside the pre-alpine lands you have these beautiful most of the time Baroque style yes. so counter-reformation style abbeys Isimo Isimo very isimo, <laughs> you go to yes,
0: the most Isimo yes, thing yes, you can think yes, is the Assam yes, Church yes, uh, yes. maybe the Wieskirk exactly uh, Oberammergau you know yeah. uh,
2: Speaking. The onion domes, the onion domes that you see all over the countryside that are very recognizable. Yeah. I think that is typical for the Bavarian countryside. Yes. And you
0: would not see that in Hamburg. No, no you would not. You'd no, you'd see a pointy spire, yes. a northern stoic, yes. a, a Protestant spire. Yes. And in Bavaria, you've got those elegant onion domes.
2: Because also, I mean, what is interesting is that often I think uh, Germany is considered as being a Protestant country. Yeah, Uh, Because we connect, uh, or particularly in the United States, maybe connect with Luther, and so we think Protestant. It's just not uh, southern Germany. Now everyone moves, and so things mix up, obviously. But uh, generally, uh, in the south, particularly in
0: Bavaria, people are Catholic. One of the most impressive relics I can think of is in uh, St. Peter's Church in Munich. You walk into St. Peter's Mm -hmm. Church, just as you enter, there's this... Amazing jeweled skeleton mm-hmm. that was a gift from the church. You step into the church and you go, "Whoa, this is not Martin Luther country. This no. is this is like Catholic Isimo."
2: It's Isimo. It's um, where you have these. Baroque style, um, yeah. well, the ceilings, the open ceilings with the pastel colors and a lot of gold and very richly decorated. Yes.
0: Now, you said on the dialect that mm. you have some wrong, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're yes. saying intentionally wrong. It's like we're, you know, I ne- the standard German, the formal German is yeah. Hochdeutsch, right? Yes. And you can write in Hochdeutsch. Yes. And you, you probably have to write yes. in High German. That's formal. Yes. Yeah. But you don't speak. In, no. like, like a Shakespearean uh, actor. Exactly. You Particularly
2: in s- the countryside. So, you, I mean, what's an
0: example? Can you give me a little uh, Bavarian dialect compared um, to uh, Berlin or Hamburg? Um,
2: let's just say, so we go to a restaurant. Yeah. Uh, in Hochdeutsch, so in, in written German, uh, we would say, wir gehen in das Restaurant. We are going to, to a the restaurant? restaurant? Okay, yeah. Wir gehen in das Restaurant. And in Bavaria, we would say, wir gehen ins Restaurant. Wir gehen in Gasthof. So we gingen ins Restaurant so gehen yeah.
0: ging so a, would say a, ging. a person from uh, another city would know oh this is a a bavarian
2: it would definitely yeah would um, definitely if it, uh, they have traveled there yeah they would know they would know it's from the, si- the the person from the south somewhere or with the article for example it is uh, we say the plate so the plate is um, der teller right in bavaria it's das teller
0: no you get the sex so, mixed up yes totally I and didn't we, know you can do that. It's yeah, okay. Well,
2: you can when you're Bavarian.
0: Because that's, that's why I quit German, <laughs> was because I couldn't remember if it was der, die, or das. Well, the, there was a male or a female or yes, a neuter, neuter sort of three. pronoun. Mm-hmm. And I was all stressed out about that, but I could have just said, hey, I'm Bavarian. <laughs>
2: exactly. So it's you das. use whatever it's you want. <laughs> <laughs> you just celebrate that you have a particular, oh, you're, de- you're an exceptional.
0: <laughs> it's a declaration of independence. <laughs> In a way. We're not, ich bin not a Berliner. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> ich bin
2: kein Berliner. I'm also a Berliner. Let's put it like that. I'm also. Besides that I'm Bavarian, I'm also a Berliner.
0: Okay, so you've got your (laughs) your independent spirit. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Daniela Vidal, and she's a proud Bavarian. She's a a guide who, who guides all over Germany, and we're talking about the difference between Bavaria and the rest of her country. When we're talking about this, I almost think about how proud people from Texas are in the United States. And there's that sort of spirit that, yes, we can do it. We don't need to be told how to do it from New York or, or California. Is there a little bit of that between Munich and Berlin?
2: Yeah, I do feel, uh, I do think that uh, there are similarities as far as the perception and maybe also the consciousness uh, between Bavarians and Texans in the way that uh, there are similarities in the sense that it's uh, is rather conservative Bundesland state. Yeah. Uh, Religion plays still quite an important role. Then there are these islands in this conservatism, like I think in Texas too. So the countryside is rather conservative, very Catholic. And then you have Munich, for example, as an island, very social democratic government since Second World War. um, Okay, so the the
0: state government of Bavaria mm -hmm. could be very conservative, and if the tourist goes to Munich, they would think, no, this is liberal, what's going on? Well, it's that urban-rural divide that we have here in the United States as well.
2: The perception maybe also from the outside, what I experience with the guests, uh, how Texans and Texas is perceived. Of course, it's. Uh, I mean, they're wonderful people everywhere. But it's the same thing that uh, other Germans would see Bavarians always with a little bit, yeah, <laughs> a, a, little, yeah. Bit attitude, a little bit of attitude. A little bit of attitude. They are different, and they want to be different. And um, do we like them?
0: Ah, it's like
2: the Lone Star. Texas has the
0: <laughs> Lone Star, and Bavaria has the Lone <laughs> yeah, Star.
2: Kind of, yeah, I I do. Yeah, yeah. We'll
0: make our rules. We and, don't need to do it your style. Now, when American thinks about Germany, there are certain cliches. But a lot of times, those German clichés are actually mm-hmm. not German, but Bavarian. Yes,
2: very What's much.
0: What's an example?
2: Well, for example, I do believe that a lot of Americans think that all Germans eat pretzel. Right. <laughs> or or big, the big pretzel. Yes. Or that everyone who is kind of in a folkloristic club or so has a lederhosen or wears dirndl, that in all the cities are maples. And when you're um, happy, you yodel. And you yodel, everyone is yodel, and everyone plays the, we say um, umtata music, you say um, umpapa music. Um, Umpapa, right. uh, We say um, umtata. And that's, these are all things that are uh, German, but they are particular, they are Bavarian. And so so you would never find anyone who eats a, a Schweinshaxe or a pork knuckle in Hamburg. They would eat a herring. <laughs> it's so funny because I'm just thinking of
0: Hamburg because Hamburg yeah. is like close to Denmark, mm-hmm. way in the north. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And it's a long way from Rome.
2: Yeah. Yes.
0: And you don't have the dirndls. Mm-hmm. You don't have the slap dancing. No. You don't have the yodeling. No. But the American would think all those things are German, but they're not. No. They are Bavarian.
2: The fun is in Bavaria.
0: The fun is in Bavaria. <laughs> And speaking of fun, Bavaria has the biggest beer party, I think, in the world. Yes. yes, yeah, Oktoberfest, and it really is a celebration of Bavaria, because the first Oktoberfest, was, wasn't it a wedding party for the royal family?
2: Absolutely. 1821, it was uh, the wedding for Theresa. Uh, therefore, we call it Theresian Wiese also. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, Theresa's Meadow. That's the area, how we call it, and it's the Oktoberfest. Yes, so it's a 1821. Yeah.
0: So we're going to have the 200th anniversary of Oktoberfest so, coming yes. up. Yes,
2: that's going to be even bigger. More than seven million people will then probably
0: seven million. That's uh, a seven lot. Seven
2: million of, liters of beer. That's sorry, a lot of will beer. Be. Yeah. Yes. That's a lot of in beer in two weeks.
0: A lot of oxen. A lot of oxen, a lot of chicken. They have entire oxen on a spit. Yes. A lot of chicken, a lot of happiness. We call
2: it the fifth uh, season in Munich, by the way. Yeah, it's
0: the fifth season of the year. It overwhelms, it takes over the city in a beautiful way. Just coincidentally, because of my work, I've been in Munich two times for Oktoberfest in the last two years. And both times, when I went to Oktoberfest, Daniela, it occurred to me, it's not really touristy. It's it's very local. Mm, local yes. people go there. I mean, tourists go there a lot. Mm. But this is a, a chance for locals to celebrate their clan, their, mm-hmm. their friends, their mm-hmm. style. Each mm-hmm. tent has a different personality.
2: Mm-hmm. I think if you have the chance to go to the Oktoberfest on the weekend and also in the middle of the week then you see the two different worlds of Oktoberfest on the weekends it's the tourists that are there by the tourists, it's yeah. uh, and if you go at lunchtime during the week that's wonderful it's calm it's quite the weather generally is very beautiful still so at beginning yeah. of october end of september you have warm weather you can sit outside and there it is calm and there you meet the locals and uh, people mix up and I noticed the
0: security is very good. In in, mm-hmm. in Europe, there's a lot of soft targets, and, mm-hmm. and Germany, like France and, mm-hmm. and any country, has yeah. had to be careful of uh, people that want to make a terrible event. Yeah. And uh, Germany is very good at not closing down, but just making good mm-hmm. security. So the grounds would be controlled, and there's one or two entries and exits, mm-hmm. and at each of those, you have police checking you. And then bag I noticed... Check. Bag check. and so on. Like in a museum. And uh, yeah. I think uh, it, it feels... It just feels wonderful inside, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm so thankful they can still have mm-hmm. big parties like that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It is.
0: Somebody told me the biggest risk is uh, people fighting with a beer, with a big glass mug.
2: Which was always which was always the biggest uh, danger. Because if yeah, you yeah. some people
0: when they get drunk they're they're just crazy physical, and these mugs are uh, two pounds. Uh, I mean, a, I a liter. Yeah. It's a it's a liter of beer, and when you are empty with that, you've got it in your hand, and yeah. you're angry. You can. I, I understood that it's like it's considered a a serious crime if you hit somebody with a mug just because they have to be very careful about that. They're even designed so the handle breaks easily. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 You talk about interesting things uh-huh. when you're sharing a beer at Oktoberfest. <laughs> <Yeah. Trust.
2: laughs> so they really want
0: to keep the mug because it's <laughs> yeah. so important but it is dangerous so they have to design it so the handle breaks off if you, if you hit somebody with it. What
2: they wanted to forbid one time was to stand on the benches actually to dance which oh. did not go through. So you cannot smoke anymore in the beer tents which no is a good smoking. thing but you still they did not get through with not standing because uh, that on the was benches. too important for it was, people's traditions. In
0: yes. fact, I've got a photograph of my plate with the beautiful sauerkraut and, <laughs> and so on in the pork knuckle with two big German boots right next to it because people <laughs> were standing on my table. And I was just thinking, don't step on my kraut, my sauerkraut. <laughs> Never step on kraut. <laughs> Never <laughs> step on sauerkraut. <laughs> Tour guide Daniela Vedel is giving us a good taste of Bavarian culture today on Travel with Rick Steves. Daniela also leads small group tours in Europe and Morocco and displays her beautiful photography work at her own gallery in Avignon, France. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Doug's calling in from Bristol in Maine. Doug, thanks for your call.
6: Hi, Rick and Daniela. Uh, My wife and I are traveling to Europe for the first time, and we get to have two days in Munich and obviously we're doing the research on what to see in Munich, and it, it, se- it seems like everything starts with the Marienplatz and the Glockenspiel. But everybody then mentions you got to go to the Hofbrauhaus, and that's the beer hall you need to see. But here in Maine, everybody wants a lobster and seafood, and uh, they want that quintessential seafood dinner. And the phrase is, Find where the locals eat, and that's where you're going to get the best seafood dinner. Not the restaurant that has the tour bus. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, the Hopf House sounds, you know, like fun. But would you recommend like other beer halls in the area uh, that um, maybe the Munich people actually have a beer at at the end of a workday? That we we could feel and meet some you know German people and feel right. the culture. Well, of
0: music. Uh, Doug, you know it's so important to see the Hofbrauhaus because yeah. it's historic, it's classic, it's got live music. But remember, it's just a touristy thing. It's, I, I really enjoy the House actually mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. The history is there; it's mm-hmm. just drenched in history. But people have, there's many beer halls and different people have their favorites. Uh, Daniela, what would a different beer hall to consider?
2: Well, a different one would be definitely, and if you want to meet the locals and probably 80% of the locals agree on that the best beer in Munich is the Augustiner beer. Yeah. So Augustine, Augustina like the monks. And so one beer garden is, for example, behind the train, train station. station. You can
0: walk there from the train yes, station. Exactly. Augustiner.
2: Augustiner beer garden close to the train station you just have to ask people know it so there you have locals uh, people from all over and then there are these beer gardens all over the city spread out in the different neighborhoods so if you are adventurous and you get yourself a public transport pass and you go out then uh, Wienerplatz is a good place W-E-I-N-E-R Wiener like Vienna written in German that you write it down and then you find it, and then you go there. There's another Augustiner beer garden, and that uh, is the one where I grew up, for example. Okay.
0: So, Augustiner, that's a very <laughs> good <the> idea, <laughs> because it's great yeah, beer, yeah. and it's a beer garden. So mm-hmm. if it's a nice evening, you're outside, and then you're going yeah. to experience this wonderful word that as a tour guide in Bavaria, you always probably have to deal with, Gemütlichkeit. Yes. You'll feel that in yes. the in the garden, in the beer yeah. garden. What is, what is Gemütlichkeit?
2: Gemütlichkeit is this phenomenon we have... Uh, I would say in Bavaria and in the pre-alpine or in the alpine areas, gemütlichkeit is some coziness. Yeah. You feel safe. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, if you're outside in a beer garden, obviously this is not the case, but generally it's a little bit too warm where it's gemütlich. <laughs> uh, because you are close together, it's a closeness, also it's cozy. It cozy. It's, uh, you feel just comfortable and you time Maybe it's no the importance in the mid- around well, in choir. winter it would be in a chalet or somewhere yeah. in a hut in a that's mountain right. hut, yeah. and in summer, so particularly yeah in Bavaria, it's a smaller space, smaller area, so uh, gemutlichkeit, yes, in the beer gardens with the music um, so that 's probably something maybe
0: in a in a small cafe or a yeah. traditional pub, you'd feel gemüt. hey doug, thanks for your question and and enjoy your trip to Munich
6: Thank you. One quick question what's a rattler? A
2: rattler is a mix of uh sprites or lemon. Uh, Sprite, like you have it here, Uh, half Sprite, half uh, lager beer. And a uh, Radler is called a Biker. Radler means biker in Bavarian, and so after that you easily ride with your bike through the city on the bike path.
0: I didn't put that together. Mm, yeah, Radler is yes. for the bikers. It's yeah.
2: yeah if you want to
0: feel like you have a beer, but you, you're not that interested in drinking a lot exactly. of beer, you cut it with your seven up.
2: But yeah. if you're a real beer drinker, you don't order Radler. Don't it's too sweet. And don't it's, drink it. It's and it's kind
0: of a feminine drink too. A lot of <laughs> a lot of women will go for the Radler, but the men will be <laughs> insulted. <laughs>
2: Sorry, I'm just laughing. <laughs> that,
0: that's like in an English pub, a shandy. It's
2: true. It's a shandy. Actually. It's a shandy. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. you're
0: right. Uh, but and then another good drink to know about is apple uh, apple
2: Absolutely. An apple Schorley, all shoreless. And Apple means apple. You know? So yeah. it's a mix of a juice, which generally are rather sweet. And we don't like things so sweet often. And so we want it refreshing. And then you mix it up with bubbly water. Yeah. So half, half. Refreshing. And you can have uh, orange Schorle, ah. any, any Schorle, any juice mixed with uh, bubbly water. I like a rattler. You're a woman.
0: I'm a bike riding woman.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Doug, thanks for your call.
6: (laughs) Thank you.
0: We'll take more of your calls for Daniela Vedel in just a minute at 877-333-7425 as we get you ready to explore Bavaria on Travel with Rick Steves. By email, you can reach us at radio at ricksteves.com. And in just a bit, wildlife photographer Marty Essen tells us about some of his favorite animals and reptiles that he's encountered in the wild. Daniela Vedel is our guide to Munich and Bavaria right now on Travel with Rick Steves. And Catherine's on the line from Decorah, Iowa, at 877-333-RICK. Hey, Catherine, what are your travel plans for southern Germany?
4: Um, I'm taking
5: my 16-year-old grandson to Munich and Bavaria, and Dachau is one of the places that he would like to visit. And so my quest- I have two questions. Um, is there easy public transportation from Munich out to Dachau and back? And then how can I best prepare him for that experience um, visiting a concentration camp?
0: Good question. Daniela, you're a parent. You want your teenager to get a, a respect for what happened in the Holocaust. That takes a little bit of thoughtfulness.
2: Well, uh, first, Sixteen, I don't know what they have uh, been taught at school, maybe to find out already what he knows so far about. Well, if he says he wants to go there, it's probably interesting to find out why he, Sixteen, wants to go there, so he right. must know something about it. Yeah. Uh, then, if I'm not wrong, there is a show recently uh, about the Holocaust, but you did, no? We we made For a TV example. show on so public television about to, fascism. Yeah, and people, about, that would
0: be a very good thing to watch beforehand, Catherine, yeah. if you find the Rick Steves show about fascism, uh, and you can stream that on the Internet easily.
2: And then uh, you have plenty of uh, museums also here dedicated to the Holocaust, so probably it would be a there, good well, thing.
0: There's a new docu-centre in Munich. In Munich also, yes. For the Holocaust, and you would see that before going out to Dachau. Mm-hmm. It's a very good exhibit mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, right in the, the center rising. of Munich.
2: What is important, I find personally very important, is to make sure that uh, your son understands the rising of uh, fascism, and uh, not just out of the context holocaust and it has happened in germany so i think uh, you have you should try to that it puts in the context so so yeah. you can and uh, then to get to dachau and back is very easy um, with public transportation it takes mm-hmm. 45 minutes so you should dedicate probably a day to this the, the whole subject theme yep. uh, minimum there are also tours in yeah. uh, in dachau that are offered by companies and yeah, it's a
0: parental thing for yeah. a, for a teenager i can see what Daniela is trying to explain because as a tour guide, I'm sure she's dealt with it. And uh, some kids can handle it. Other kids, you'd have to be careful about. Dachau is probably a good example of a concentration camp for teenagers more than some other camps. Mm -hmm. But you would want to be there with them and help curate what they're Mm -hmm. looking at because it's it's a powerful, powerful experience. And it's a valuable experience. Good for your teenager for having a curiosity about it Mm -hmm. and uh, good for you as a parent to uh, help make that happen. Does that help, Catherine?
5: Uh, yes, and I've seen uh, the show on uh but I don't believe my grandson has, has seen it, so that's mm-hmm. a good suggestion to make sure that he he sees that before mm-hmm. we go. Yeah, mm-hmm. and,
0: and Germany is doing a very good job of sharing the lessons from its hard history for travelers these days, much better now than 20 years ago. So as you travel around, there's a lot you can see and do. I, I would say something uh, fascinating is going to Berchtesgarten, where there's another documentation center where people you learn about it, and then you can actually go up into Hitler's eagle's nest, and that's Mm -hmm. quite a fascinating experience without the graphic heartache of a concentration camp.
5: Mm.
0: Thanks for your call, Catherine. Thanks. Amanda's calling in from Concord in California. Amanda, thanks for your call.
5: Hi, Rick. Hi, Daniela. Thanks for taking my call. My husband and I are planning a trip, and we're planning on bringing our six-year-old daughter, so I was hoping for some recommendations of places in Munich and around Bavaria that are Kid-friendly. Um, hopefully, some places also that are kind of in nature. Maybe some short hikes. Something with animals that she might enjoy.
2: Hmm. All right. So yeah, yes, yes. For example, well, in Munich, you have of course uh, along the Isa River that runs through uh, mm-hmm. Munich. That is beautiful. You can stroll. You can walk down there. You can have a picnic down there. She can play. It's like a park uh, along it's a, the river. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You can hike along the river. Yes, yeah. yeah. It's, it's wonderful. I don't know if she's riding a bike. In Munich, uh, children with six years ride their bikes already. That could be, and there's mm-hmm. enough space. Otherwise, there's something nice just outside, just about uh, five kilometers outside. Even the tram goes there, the public transport. Uh, It's the Bavaria film studios where the never-ending story was filmed and where there's still Fuhur, you know, the dog kind of fluffy one. It's there. And there is also in the forest there is some wildlife um, where they have deer and yeah. wild boar and, and all the animals and they explain about the the forest animals in in Bavaria. So that's very nice what and is that is that very close together. That again? That is at Strasla. This is the next to the Bavaria Film Studios. Okay. So when you go there, that's uh, it's next to it. And there is a tram. Public transport goes there. It takes twenty minutes. In the Forgetting. big park,
0: the English Garden. English Garden, beautiful place. Very you can good. see the people surfing.
2: Yes, also
0: there's a river where pe- there's a constant wave and people are surfing, just like at you know in, in the ocean, yeah. but right on a river in Munich, which is a lot of fun for kids to watch. And it's not nature, but uh, it's uh, certainly interesting. The Deutsches Museum,
2: exactly, and that's down at the Isar River. So and when you're a down a there, it a lot
0: of kid-oriented yes. things. A wonderful planetarium, and uh, and that would be like going to the Smithsonian Institute, but in Germany.
2: And then of course all the uh, Rodelbahn, all the uh, luge rides that are surround uh, the luge rides to do it. So if you have a car south, uh, in the foothills of the Alps. Yes, for that's example. That's a there good plenty, idea. Yeah, Amanda, the
0: ski lifts in the summer, they still run, but they don't take skiers up. They take uh, nature lovers up, and then you go down the slopes, not on skis, but on like go karts that are mm-hmm. in these concrete slalom courses back and forth, and mm-hmm. it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. And that's the uh, summer Rodelbahn, yeah. And you'll see people doing that in Bavarian kids love it.
2: Google luge. If you luge. Google luge, you should find something. And that's... Uh, so if you have a car, then just going towards the mountains, it's a 30 minutes drive. You have all these lakes also where you can swim in and uh, it's wonderful things. Nice, Amanda. Have fun with your family.
5: Thank you so much. It's such a treat. Thanks.
2: You bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been
0: talking about Bavaria and Munich and Bavarian culture with Daniela Vidal. Daniela, thank you so much. This is this makes me want to go back to Bavaria.
2: Thanks for having me. Dank. Oh I holy Laria. I am from Bavaria. I've a guns forth and I lead a hosen. And I drink no beer or foes. Oh I,
3: I am from Bavaria. I always
2: drink my beer from Fuss. Since it bring my
3: new amount.
0: Wildlife photographer Marty Essen likes to learn the stories of the birds and animals who live in the places where he camps out. Sometimes it gets him into situations that you can only laugh about after you return home. He joins us now to report on a few of the more memorable encounters he's had in the world's wildest places. Marty, welcome. Hey, Rick. Good to be on your show. If I want to travel and appreciate nature, what kind of prerequisites are there? What sort of knowledge should I have before I leave home to appreciate uh, all these great things I might be able to see?
3: What I did is I picked up every book I could find on wildlife in that particular area because I wanted to know what I was going to see uh, once I got to that particular area of the world. But it was amazing that no matter how much research I did ahead of time, nature always had a surprise for me that I didn't expect. And that's kind of the fun part. Once you got there. Once I got there. You know, a lot of these rainforest regions, whether it's be Costa Rica or especially when I was in Borneo, it's such an under-researched area, uh, they're still discovering hundreds of new species every single year. And so, you know, sometimes you just don't know. Or I, I was in Borneo, and we see this little snake on the ground, and I'm with a guide from the Desun Sigma tribe who was born in the rainforest and lived there his entire life, and he was probably about 50 years old, and we come across this snake. And before I touch it, I call him over, and he looks at it, and he says, Worm snake, harmless. And so I reach down, and I pick up a little snake, and it bites me a couple times in the finger, but it's a small snake, and it can't quite break my skin. And I take a couple pictures of it, and I put it down, and I don't think anything of it till I'm back in Montana. And I'm working on my chapter, doing my post trip research, and matched up the photo with a book, and it turned out to be a venomous banded coral snake that was gnawing on my finger. So sometimes and it didn't it
0: break the skin, so you're lucky. Didn't
3: break the skin, so I was lucky. But you know, so even when you're with a guide, sometimes when you're in a remote area, you know, you're both,
0: everybody's learning at the same time. I was so charmed by the cute little brown blunt-headed vine snake.
3: Oh, that was that was a really cool find. That was in Costa Rica. Uh we were out on a night hike. Uh-huh. And you know, I'm looking around and this the daintiest little snake I'd ever seen. It's probably about maybe a foot and a half long, but it was skinnier than a pencil. But the head is like too big for its body. That's how it gets to the name blunt-headed snake. So I'm trying to take a picture of it, and I can't quite get my camera to focus where it is. And so I turn to my guide and you know ask him, is it venomous? And he says, well, it might be rear-fanged venomous. But being a rear-fanged snake generally means, unless you're in Africa, generally rear-fanged snakes aren't very venomous. It's just mild venom. So I picked the snake up, and he was very docile I handed my camera to my wife and Deb took the photo of me. And anyway, That's one of the photos I have in my book, Endangered Edens, of me holding this dainty little snake. And just but,
0: moderately venomous.
3: Yeah, just moderately venomous.
0: Marty Essen is a wildlife photographer and naturalist from Montana. He frequently speaks on college campuses about the amazing things the natural world has shown him all around the planet. He's written Endangered Edens to depict what he found in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, the Everglades, Puerto Rico, and Costa Rica. And his earlier book, Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, takes us to all seven continents. Since we recorded our interview, Marty has also published two science fiction political comedies in his Time is Irreverent series. His website is martyessen.com. That's E-S-S-E-N. So you've had some incredible adventures you've written about. One of my favorites was canoeing down the Zambezi River in Zimbabwe. And then you hit what you thought was a rock. Can you tell us about that? Well,
3: yeah. We had spent five days hiking across Manipool's National Park, a 53-mile hike. And as we're hiking, we see these giant Nile crocodiles along the riverbank, and we see all these hippos in the water. And after we finish this hike, we're going to get into canoes and we're going to head down the Zambezi River on a three-day canoe trip, basically retracing our tracks. And my wife and I, and there were two other couples with us, we were all real nervous about this portion of the trip. And our guide, sensing how nervous we were, he sat us down. And he said, listen, I've been taking people down the Zambezi River for 16 years. Never once have we had anyone attacked by an animal. Sit back relax. You'll be surprised how safe and easy this trip is going to be. And so we get into canoes, five canoes and all, and we head down the Zambezi River and immediately we would come across this barricade of hippos. And the hippos, they're snorting and they're roaring and I'm wondering how are we going to get past these hippos?
0: What's a barricade? Is that, is that like the word for a herd? Or well, are you talking about a barricade across the bar- river?
3: There was this line of hippos that were in our way.
0: Right there, crossing the river. Yeah, okay. right
3: across the river. And, but as we get closer, the hippos sink underneath the water and then we canoe right over them with our hearts just pounding. And your guide is saying relax? Relax. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> and then, then we come to a part of the river where there aren't any hippos and one of the rules was canoeing with hippos is you always want to be in deep water and deep water is right against the riverbank at this point of the river so we're right against the riverbank my wife and i are in the second to the last canoe and just enjoying this beautiful sunny day and all of a sudden we feel this bump and we're both thinking well maybe we hit a rock Next thing you know, we're six feet up in the air. The hippo had come underneath us, bit the canoe dead center in the middle of the canoe. Its lower tusk went right through the bottom of the canoe. Its top jaw came over and snapped the gunwale. And if you can imagine a front end loader lifting gravel and then dumping it on shore, that's what the hippo did to us. You know, I can still see it in my mind in slow motion as it happens. We go up in the air, and I fly out of the canoe first. And then Deb flies out of the canoe, and she hits the ground with this eerie thud. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's dead. And I run up to her. Deb, are you okay? Are you okay? And she gets up. And then we remember the hippo, and we wheel toward the water, and the hippo drops the canoe and then melts back into the
0: river. You also had a guide who was a little sloppy up in the Arctic uh, on, on a river trip. Tell us about oh, that.
3: Yeah, that was up in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And, you know, I've been with some of the best guides in the world, I think. Um, but this guide... Boy, you know,
0: he just... You're rafting down this river. Yeah,
3: we're taking a canoe down the Jago River, and we're going basically from the Brooks Range Mountains out to the Arctic Ocean. And you called it a braided
0: river. What does that mean?
3: It's a braided river, and what that means is the river will break off into smaller channels, and then come back together. And then come so back like together. So like braiding, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I th- I think our guide that we had there had been guiding way too many years. And he was basically in for it for himself and not necessarily for his clients. You know, my wife and I are experienced canoeers, but we're not great fast canoeers. And the whole idea for me when I'm in an area is you go slow and, and you enjoy. Uh, not It's not a race. Yeah, there was one scary moment where... He gets ahead of us and we find ourselves all alone on this braided river. And if we take the wrong braid, I mean, we're up in the Arctic and there is, you know, no one up there. How are they going to find us as we're going on these braids? It's not like you can see from so braid to So that would braid.
0: be a scary moment when you don't have your guide within sight. With, when you don't have your guide you got to go sight. with the flow y- on yeah. the river.
3: And, you know, and what do you do? I mean, it's right. not, it's not so like what, there what happened? Well, we happened to take the right braid and caught up with well, them and lucky. and basically said, don't ever do that again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're adventuring through the, some of the most gorgeous places on the planet with Marty Essen. His book is Endangered Edens and Cool Creatures, Hot Planet. Marty, you've got in your books, it seems you love to take photographs of critters. Most of them are not the kind of critters you'd want to cuddle up with in bed, I mean, or on the sofa. These are like you know, lizards and and snakes and creepy things. Is there something that you find attractive for these kind of animals?
3: Well, you know, it's just, I, I don't think animals like that necessarily have an advocate and i try to be an advocate for them i mean steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter was kind of the original advocate for Mm -hmm. uh creeping crawling creatures you know and i do have a lot of bird life and a lot of fuzzy and and beautiful creatures in my books as well Mm -hmm. but it's like i think a good example is a vampire bat when we were in belize in my first book cool creatures hot planet we go into this cave that's filled with vampire bats and they're little guys they're only about two inches long You know, one of the problems with vampire bats is wherever humans move, they tend to want to kill off all the vampire bats. Well, it turns out that vampire bats have the most effective anticoagulant known to man in their saliva. Scientists have taken this anticoagulant and they've turned it into a life-saving heart drug. And you'll love this name. It's called Draculin. And so Draculin is given to heart patients, people who have had heart attacks or strokes. So here you have a little creature that some people might want to wipe off the face of the planet that is actually saving lives of humans all over the world there are also venomous snakes that they're using for maybe things like diabetes and things like that. So there's just a lot of different things that can come from these animals.
0: Marty, I understand that you give uh, talk around the world in 90 minutes uh, on campuses all over the country, just uh, turning people onto the wonders of nature. Out of all the images you show and the stories you tell, what's the one that you really enjoy that, that really gets a fun reaction?
3: Well, I think the most fun one is I'm in Zimbabwe, and I catch the biggest snake I've ever caught in my life or ever will catch in my life. I wouldn't dare try anything bigger. It's about a a ten-and-a-half-foot-long rock python. And it takes me several minutes to catch a snake, and it's snapping at me.
0: Now, does that uh, mean you're just like running through the scrub brush, grabbing it?
3: N- well, no, he's kind of out in the open on a riverbank. Okay. And so he's coiled up in a defensive uh, position, and I'm trying to grab it by its neck, and it's snapping out at me. And I'm kind of doing the Steve Irwin thing, jumping backwards with my hands in the air. Eventually, I catch it and, uh, you know, I just hold it for a few moments, and then the picture that gets everybody in the show is the last picture of me giving the snake a great big kiss on the head, <laughs> and I can see the audience and, and, and people covering their eyes when this picture is up on the big screen.
0: <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Marty Essen about uh, his book, Endangered Edens. Uh, we haven't talked about penguins yet. Let's finish just with a, a story of a one of your encounters with a penguin. You
3: know, the great thing about going to, down to Antarctica is the animals do not have a natural fear of people. And so we could get really close to the animals down there, although, you know, there were always rules we couldn't get, we had to stay 15 feet away, but they could approach us as close as they wanted to. So, yeah, we'd have penguins coming up to us, and uh, they would pull on our shoelaces or, or pull on our pants legs. Then if you walked away, they'd follow you as if you were mom. One of the neat things that we got to watch was a penguin swimming lesson. And who knew penguins needed to learn how to swim? But we're watching these penguin chicks, and they were in this little pond or little pool uh, at the edge of a glacier, and they'd stick their head underneath the water, and they'd hold it for about 10 seconds, and then they would come up, and then they would joyfully run around and announce their accomplishment to the other penguins. It was just adorable. They were so just wonderful to watch, and we were
0: just cracking up. Marty and thanks so much for joining us.
3: Well, thank you so much, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Isaac kaplan Woolner, and Kazmira Hall. We get website support from Amerikipnikone, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find guest information, program extras, and you can listen again on demand. Look for our show notes. They're updated each week at ricksteves.com radio. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
5: Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.